0: Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week, we are joined by Dr. Rumi Sakamoto to discuss remembering the kamikaze and the role of affects in war memory. Rumi shares with us how the image of the kamikaze has gone from one of shunned fanaticism to self-sacrificing heroism in popular culture through Japan's post-war history. Looking at the representation in the Yushukan Museum of War at Yasukuni Shrine, Rumi also unpacks how affects can draw out a desired emotional response from visitors, regardless of their preconceptions of kamikaze and how emotion can lend authenticity to historically problematic narratives. We hope you enjoyed the show. Good morning, Rumi. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Good morning. Thank you very much.
0: So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there?
1: Yeah, uh, my main research area is uh, popular culture and also nationalism, national identity, that kind of thing. My PhD long time ago was um, about the formation of national identity in the uh, early Meiji period, which is around 1870s and 1880s. So this is when Japan turned into a modern nation state after the encounter with the West. And at that time, I was interested more in the official state discourse and how the national elite created the uh, new sense of Unified the nation and disseminated this new sense amongst the population. Um, So, the people no longer then identified themselves primarily as peasants or samurai, but they became Japanese. And I was interested in this process and mechanism of the interpolation and articulation of people into the national subject. Then uh, my interest has since moved to more contemporary expressions of nationalism and national identity and particularly popular, but now everyday kind of nationalism. So I'm more interested now in how ordinary people engage with the idea of the nation. I teach in New Zealand now, but originally I come from Japan and that's where I was educated first. And I I come from a fairly left liberal household. Um, My father was active in student movement in the 60s and I think one of my uncles actually got arrested for having been involved in student movement too. And the education I went through in Japan was also fairly left liberal, which was very common back then. So what this means in Japanese context is that for someone like me, anti-war and pacifism was an absolute norm. So there was this widely shared sentiment against anything to do with military war, nationalism, and the emperor. That was pretty much standard position within educated Japanese, Japanese academia. Um, so nationalism was something that there was obviously need to be criticized and something to be denounced because, well, it was nationalism that led to the last war and we all know what happened. And then something happened around the uh, 1990s and early 21st century when in Japan there was a surge of popular nationalism and neoconservatism. I'm not talking about old-style ultra-nationalism, which was always kind of undercurrent in the society, but a new kind of nationalism and patriotism, which was found its expression in kind of fashionable, glossy magazines and comic books and popular culture later on the Internet as well. And as I was watching this from New Zealand, it was quite remarkable. And of course, intellectuals first ignored it because it was vulgar and intelligent, irrational. Now it's not even worth engaging. And I also thought they were terribly vulgar and unsophisticated. but I was also fascinated because they were undoubtedly popular, and they were attracting followers and increasing visibly. So I started to look at some of these popular writers and popular works and trying to find out what was happening and what made their you know seemingly really irrational and vulgar perspective attractive to many people and then around then um, i happened to be in the area of kudanshita in tokyo where yasukuni shrine is and then i just thought i'll visit i had never been there because because i guess i already made up my mind about the place that you know it's a It's a horrible place. Just the name brought me a kind of yuck feeling. Mm. Um, So it was associated with militarism, nationalism. Why would I go? But I happened to be there, and I thought I'll go and have a look. So it was more like sightseeing or education. It was definitely not going to be about my research. So um, I went there uh, with full intention to criticize Because it was a war shrine, it glorifies the war criminals, and uh, I was going to be appalled, disgusted um, by especially Yushuka and the History Museum of the Shrine, which was infamous. And then yet when I was inside and started to read the diaries and letters of the dead soldiers, I found myself quite moved and touched by those stories of young men's sacrifice for the nation. So there was a conflict between kind of rational, academic thinking, me, which was saying this is all propaganda, and then emotional me, who just wanted to feel. So I think that's when um, I wanted to think through about that conflict. And that's how this article about Kamikaze Pilots and Yushutan came about.
0: That's fascinating, and especially to hear the backstory of how you were moved at the Yushikan despite your reservations. Because when I visited there myself the first time, I'm clearly not the target audience of the Yushikan, yet I also felt moved as well, which is uh, why I was so interested in your article. So, the Tokko, or Special Forces Pilots of the Asia-Pacific War, popularly known as Kamikaze, have become legendary figures in American and Japanese war media, in particular. Objectively speaking, who were the kamikaze, and what was their real impact in the Asia Pacific War?
1: Right. So the kamikaze, or the special attack forces, and the, this, this is really about Japanese military's desperate tactic in the very final phase of the Pacific War. So people often think this was going on throughout the. Uh, the Pacific War. But that's not the case. It was introduced October 1944. So it's just very, very last part when the military was desperate because they were running out of the resource to continue the war. So there was no, by then there was no oil, no scrap metal, no nothing. And it was clear that the US was dominant and they came up with this idea of the suicide attack. So they tried to turn pilots into human bombs. They were mostly young men in late teens, early 20s, often straight out of the school or university with little experience of flying or combat and minimum training only. The youngest recorded kamikaze pilot was only 17. So, you know, indeed, the, 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 these people then put on often poorly maintained aircrafts with the one-way fuel because they weren't expected to come back. They were expected to die. So they were sent off to crash their plane on a target, which was usually an enemy ship. Altogether, about uh, 4,000 deaths are recorded in this short period of less than a year. If we include other forms of suicide attacks, not just with the airplane, but there were human torpedoes, suicide boats, suicide trucks, suicide flying bombs, suicide divers. They came up with all this ridiculous idea of suicide attacks, right? So if we include all of them, the number of the deaths in suicide attacks actually more than double. Now, in terms of the impact in the earlier days, I think this tactic did terrify the Allies. Overall, it didn't really change the course of the war. But towards the end of the war, Kamikaze wasn't about winning the war anymore. It continued, in fact, even after it was clear that Japan was going to lose and there was no hope of actually winning the war. So it wasn't about winning. The suicide attacks continued perhaps even more intensively because by then, these missions were less about bringing down the enemy, but more about death, dying itself, as a way of proving their, I guess, commitment to the nation. So for the military, it became a way of showing the so-called Japanese spirit. And by impressing the Allies in this way, it was also hoped to help the post-war negotiation over the terms of a surrender. But overall, really, I would say there was a minimum impact.
0: Yes. I remember in your article you mentioned that I think less than 10% of kamikaze pilots actually reached their targets. Isn't that correct? Mm,
1: Yeah, exactly. A lot of them just dropped into the ocean and uh, shot out by the uh, Americans.
0: Now, um, in your... Recent chapter on Kamikaze in post war Japanese media, you state that the image of the Kamikaze has changed much in the media with a strong connection to changes in the political landscape in post war Japan. Could you briefly go over this changing face of Kamikaze with us?
1: Yeah, sure. During the war itself, they were considered to be gunshin. This is a Japanese term, which roughly means military gods or living gods. No, they Uh, sacrificing their own lives for the nation. And then this kind of deified them in the eyes of the mainstream media and the, I guess, to ordinary people too. There were a lot of propaganda films made along the line of them being a living god. And there were plenty of glorified reports of the, the suicide attacks which actually took place. Now, when the war ended, during the occupation, Things changed. So, immediate post war after 1945 and during the US occupation, the survived kamikaze pilots, not the ones who died, but the survived one. they became actually an object of contempt and they were detested as ultra nationalists because this was a time of the, uh, the new Japan, new democracy, and the American occupation. And they were considered often deranged fanatics or perhaps ignorant victims of militarism, but certainly not heroes and not the uh, the guard. But when the U.S. occupation left and the censorship came to an end, there were more positive depictions of suicide attack pilots. And in 1960s, there was a kamikaze film boom there were several films made about the suicide attacks and this tended to be quite um, sentimental in their treatment of the kamikaze and then interestingly there was a blank period between 1974 and the 1990 this is the time when japan matured into an affluent society and no war was kind of becoming a thing of the past. So during this period, not even a single film made about kamikaze. And this is when in Japan, there was a renewed reflection on the wartime atrocities and colonialism, especially within academia, but also amongst the citizens. And in this context, it's understandable that kamikaze was considered to be a symbol of militarism, was not a very popular theme in popular culture. And then they make a reappearance in the 1990s against the backdrop of intensifying historical debate between Japan and Korea and Japan and China. So there were issues like the Nanjing Massacre, the comfort women, and in this context there were new representations of kamikaze and there were quite a lot of films and TV dramas made after the 1990s. And these tend to emphasize either kamikaze as a hero or victim. So the hero narrative goes something like this. They chose heroic deaths to protect the nation and they embraced their own death. And of course, it wasn't an easy choice, but they were not fanatic. They were not brainwashed. It was a difficult time of history and they chose to sacrifice their will. So there was an emphasis of the free will, dignity, and the uh, recognition of such element in Kamikaze. The victim, discourse, on the other hand, with something like they were made to participate in the suicide mission. They were killed by the military or the state of the emperor. So there's a little bit of um, meaningless death aspect here. And they, often these two, aspects to um, the hero and victim, these were both found in the same, let's say, cultural production like a film and they balanced them in uh, different proportions. So not all of them are 100% about aestheticization and glorification. No, They were often an acknowledgement of the conflict and difficulty and even a doubt, but at the same time, they don't just to show them as a victim who were forced to die. So generally, there was a high degree of aestheticization, the hero narrative, plus a little bit of recognition of the victim aspect. And I think that's the most recent and current situation.
0: I see. Just out of curiosity, I assume you've watched a number of kamikaze films as part of your research. Is there a particular title which you feel has a relatively accurate portrayal of
1: kamikaze (laughs) Um, not really no I wouldn't say that but there's a documentary made by the uh, American documentary filmmaker called the wings of defeat and that I recommend it has a number of interviews with the uh, actual surviving kamikaze
0: excellent I'll have to watch that then so, there are a number of prominent war memorials and museums across Japan dedicated to kamikaze pilots, and your 2015 article, Mobilizing Affect for Collective War Memory Kamikaze Images in Yushukan, focuses on arguably the largest of such memorial institutions, Yasukuni Shrines Yushukan, or Museum of War. Before we get into the kamikaze display your article focuses on, could you explain for us what the Yushukan is and the kind of history it presents?
1: Um, first of all, there are other museums of special attack forces in Japan. So the Yasukuni is certainly not the uh, only or the, even the biggest one. If you're just talking about kamikaze, um, there's, uh, for example, Chiran Museum for Kamikaze Pilots in Kagoshima. And this one is dedicated to the special attack pilots who launched from the air base, which was in Chiran. So Ryushukan is not the only museum of this kind. But what makes it special is that it's a museum of Japanese war history owned and managed by the Yasukuni Shrine itself, which enshrines the spirits of 2.5 million war dead. As such, Yushukan is dedicated to telling the stories of um, what they call the divinities enshrined at Yasukuni. It is a history museum and exhibitions are chronologically ordered just like any history museum. You walk around and learn about the history, there's explanation of historical events, but its primary purpose is to glorify or revere the spirits of the war dead. It presents Japan's modern history focusing on war and people who died in war and it offers a revisionist interpretation of Japanese history. That is, it narrates Japan's war and the imperial expansion in a positive light, making light of Japan's colonial domination in Taiwan and Korea, or atrocities committed by the imperial army, such as the Nanjing Massacre. So Generally, within academia, it's seen as a politically motivated and ideologically problematic history museum of nationalistic bend.
0: I see. Thank you for that summary. Um, on the kamikaze display at the yushukan, you refer to the role of affect, describing the images of, of the kamikaze as somatic markers or sticky objects of emotion which bring out a certain desired emotion in visitors, in this case, empathy or national pride. You suggest that this can see the subjectivity of the visitors influenced regarding the problematic historical narrative found there. Could you define affect for us and explain what it is doing and how it's being used in the Yishikan Kamikaze display?
1: Right. So by affect, I mean pre-discursive, impact made on a physical um, biological body it's a feeling before a feeling is articulated into language as specific emotions such as anger sadness joy whatever so what i have tried to say in the article is that when we face the images and narratives presented at yushukan let's say a letter written by a young pilot to his mother expressing his gratitude for having raised him, his love of the family and nation with a request to please look after his fiancée whom he is not going to see before his suicide mission. This kind of story would make an impact on our body at a visceral level. Now in yushukan. Those who died in special attacks are shown not as some sort of extraordinary superhuman, but ordinary Japanese who was a father, son, brother, who sacrificed their uh, own lives in a very difficult history with an intention to protect the loved ones. So reading their stories, letters, and diaries move us and touch us. They, they have effective impact But this effect at the point of the initial impact is not yet symbolized using language. So it's a ripple, heaviness of heart and intensity registered on our biological bodies. I'm thinking about things like goosebumps, body temperature going up and down, tears, that kind of thing. So these physical responses then become recognizable as emotion, such as sadness, anger, only after they go through the layer of language and culture. What I tried to show in the article is how such a pre-discursive, pre-symbolic effect registered on our body is then quickly framed in the overall narrative and the museum design of Yushukan, as well as the wider cultural discourse in Japan about self-sacrifice and the uh, the popular literary trope of tragic hero which is built on the idea of inevitable death acceptance of the defeat and the embracement of death so through these dense meanings that kind of condensed onto the image of kamikaze the affective intensity and emotion of the visitors is channels into the language of nationalism and patriotism. That is, they get attached to the idea that these young men sacrificed their lives for the nation. And it was a beautiful, heroic thing to do. And this was quite clear when I analyzed the visitors' books of the Yushukan. Many people thanked the soldiers for having sacrificed their lives for, um, to protect the nation and laid the foundation of Japan today with its peace and affluence. Many visitors also pointed out how today's youth um, or the visitors themselves were not making good use of their lives and expressed their desire to live for something larger than their own lives, such as the nation. Of course, not everyone went along with this dominant reading, and there were minorities who challenged Yushukan's revisionist historical narrative, but then large majority of the visitors, judging from what they have said in the visitors' notes, seem to have bought into the patriotic reading via the narrative of the tragic hero. And once connected, attached with this authentic experience of visceral response, feeling, and emotion through one's own physical body because, you know, feelings are direct, right? We experience feeling as something that is direct, immediate, and the authentic because we feel it, no? You actually feel it. There's no question about it. It's authentic. So by attaching to this authentic experience, Yushukan's revisionist history, I think, gains an extra strength, It's as though the authenticity of the feeling guarantees the correctness of the history exhibited there. Yeah,
0: that's fascinating. So let's do a direct juxtaposition then. On the one hand, we have this portrayal of kamikaze as ordinary people who, through extraordinary courage, integrity, and love for their country, commits the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, a theme which can be found not just in the yushukan, but as you mentioned, across Japanese media, including popular anime titles like Astro Boy, Space Battleship Yamato, and Neon Genesis Evangelion. How does this stand up to the historical record of kamikaze pilots, and how has mobilizing affects for collective war memory impacted on popular historical views of the age of Pacific war?
1: Um, As we have been looking at, the um, the cultural representations largely aestheticize kamikaze, right? So it's beautiful self-sacrifice for something larger than oneself, future of the nation, and it serves as a model and example for today's youth. So that's the kind of cultural um, discourse and representation that is going around. But the historical reality, despite all this um, heroic, glorified, beautified description of the Kamikaze, the historical reality, if you look at it, is that they say that they were all volunteer, but it was in name only because what they faced was all these young people were given three choices, either volunteer willingly or volunteer or refuse. And the consequence of choosing the refuse was... You know, pretty bad, you would be humiliated, you would be ostracized, your family would suffer, and a lot of people later say that it was not even thinkable to choose, refuse. So the choice was either volunteer willingly or volunteer. And you know, once they were chosen, it, there was an inevitable death. There was no way they could survive anyway. The whole point of Kamikaze was the death. So um, in reality, they were not volunteer. It was a systematic systematic tactic planned by the military, which regarded younger people as a replaceable, consumable resource. And on top of that, as you mentioned earlier, it was pretty ineffective, very low success rate. Many just ditched into the ocean, couldn't even reach the target. The airplanes were in such a bad condition that they couldn't you know, even fly all the way to the target. Despite its psychological impact being there. So there was a bit of a gap between the image and reality here. Now, I don't think that the cultural image of beautiful. Self-sacrifice, the kind of trope itself, I don't think that's you know necessarily wrong because it can inspire people to act altruistically and motivate us to strive for helping the others. So if we are simply talking about the cultural representation of the self-sacrifice per se, that's not an issue. What's more problematic, I think is the confusion of this cultural trope with the real history. These days, Japan's wartime actions and historical memories of colonial imperial aggressions are becoming a very emotional issue. Those people who challenge Japanese wartime actions, as well as those who defend them, are often talking about this from an emotional perspective, at an emotional level. Japan and South Korea, Japan and China. And I think the kind of phenomenon I have been talking about has contributed to this situation of the increasingly emotional take on these historical memory issues.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's something important to consider. Uh, It's how we interpret our history, what it means to us is something which, as historians can often be Overlooked when we are trying to find historical accuracy.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah,
0: and speaking of that, uh, it's important to note that the Yushikan display, if you haven't had an historian's training, it would be easy to miss the fact that any kind of correspondence from the Kamikaze that would have been critical of the system or the situation would have been deleted by censorship in the wartime. So, what what is on display is by no means a complete record of how all Kazoo felt the about their situation.
1: So Yeah, that's absolutely true.
0: Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, Rumi. It's been a real pleasure. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on?
1: Um, yeah, uh, I'm currently looking at the representations of Japanese Americans in Japanese TV drama as an example of transnational memory making in popular culture so that's one thing and i'm also looking at the changing pacifism within japanese anime
0: great well look forward to that thank you for coming on the show again rumi it's been a real pleasure thank you you can find a link to rumi's research profile in the description below next week you'll we'll be joined by dr charlotte linton Robert and Lisa Sainsbury Research Fellow at the Sainsbury Institute to discuss dorozome textiles and traditional crafts today. Charlotte will with us how her change from the fashion industry to academia over environmental concerns brought her to the dorozome or mud dyeing workshops of Amami Ōshima to understand the challenges and benefits of traditional crafting methods in a world dominated by fast fashion. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.